uh, back at it. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I'm Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. Colby, how are you doing on this cold, windy afternoon? Well, Carson, I'm cold. I liked it a lot better yesterday when it was 75 degrees. We were actually going to record yesterday afternoon, and uh, I texted Carson. I'm like, hey, why don't we record when it's 40 degrees outside instead of when it's 75 degrees outside? And I went and hit golf balls. So it was, uh, it's been a, a tale of two days this week with the weather in Oklahoma. That was a great call. I have no desire to go outside today. So that, that was an outstanding call by you. Job well done. <laughs> uh, we have a lot to get to today, but first let's hear from Chris's University Spirit. All day, every day, they offer free standard shipping on orders over 50 bucks. You can go to chrisuniversityspirit.com. They're located at 244 South Knobloch in Stillwater, America. We love Chris's. We love having them on the pod and get by Chris's and get all your Oklahoma State shopping needs taken care of. Uh, Colby, let's start with this Super League concept that's been all the rage this week. The uh, if, you're, if you're not aware of what's going on, the European soccer leagues were trying to form a, basically a 12-team Super League of all the big names like Manchester United, Liverpool, on down the line. And people are like riding the streets of England and Spain. Nobody wants it because it's it's not really a competition when you just have 12 teams regardless and you can't be relegated and there's no real incentive to, to lose, or there's no real incentive to win or lose. You're just making money. And so a lot of college football writers have played off of that. One that caught my attention and then yours was Andy Staples put together his list of what he would consider a, a I think it was a 16-team Super League. I'm trying to pull up the tweet here, but there was obvious names was in the, there. 15, because that's what the proposed um, Super League for I guess they're not technically calling it the European Super League as I think they're leaving the door open to potentially add uh, an American team, an Argentinian team, whatever in the future. But 15 is the, the team proposal with what's happening with soccer. Okay, yeah. So the, he had 15 football programs and a lot of names you would expect. Alabama, Auburn, it's iffy for me, Clemson, Florida, Georgia, LSU, Michigan, Nebraska, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Oregon, Penn State, Texas, and USC. So some of those names make sense, Colby, but when I tweeted this out, I, I just cannot fathom in what scenario or what reasoning Andy Staples, who I respect, one of the best national college football writers, would have Nebraska on this list. It's absolutely baffling. I didn't get to read the article, but what, make, what sense can you make of it? Yeah, so I scrolled through some more of Andy Staples' tweets, and basically the, the gist of it, from what I understood, was that Nebraska was in there as like the uh, just in there for tradition, just the tradition of the program. And I'm like, okay, I, I guess I can kind of get that. Look, Carson, I was born in 1992, so Nebraska's tradition to me is not even a distant memory. It's it's so long ago that it's not even a part of my life. And and more and more people, more and more young people who are getting into college sports and college football, uh, you know, like, gee, I don't know, the kids that Nebraska's trying to recruit nowadays have no idea that Nebraska used to be a powerhouse. Nebraska is totally irrelevant in the landscape of college football in 2021. I don't mean they're down a little bit. I don't mean they're slumping. I mean Nebraska football 
is irrelevant in 2021. They are the equivalent of, I, I, I don't know, what's a, what's a good comp? Um, I was going to say Iowa State football, but Matt Campbell's got Iowa State football heading a, a hell of a lot better direction than Nebraska. I don't know. What's a good comp, you think, for, uh, for, for Nebraska well, football? It's, it's interesting because they've been better than I thought over a, a long period of time. I was prepared in my tweet to say they've been absolutely horrific since they left the Big 12, which isn't really true. They, they're averaging four wins over the last four years. The last four years have been just a complete – calamity they went four and eight four and eight five and seven and three and five last year so I was willing to take it even a step further but then you look Mike Riley won nine games he won fours last year six and nine Bo Pelini won nine ten and nine ten ten nine and then Bill Callahan won five nine eight five and then Solich won ten his last year so there's a lot of ten win nine win seasons sprinkled in there I was not quite prepared for or frankly remembered but if we're just going on the last four or five years they're not even Kansas State Colby like they're they're below Kansas State they're they're just a notch above Kansas in my opinion in the last four years now that's a small sample size when you're talking about the entire history of a football program I understand that but to your point the days of Tom Osborne just murdering college football going what was it 25 and 0 over two years, winning two straight national championships? Those days are long gone. You were three years old at the time, the last time they, they won the national championship <laughs> with Tom Osborne. Actually, they won it in 97 as well. They split it with Michigan and they would have killed Michigan. But ever since Tom Osborne's left, they were good under Frank Solich. They weren't the best in the Big 12, weren't even close to the best in the Big 12. Bill Callahan started the slow, precipitous dive. Bo Pelini did way better than I remembered. 9, 10, 10, 9, 10, 9, and they fired him. Yeah, and they kicked <laughs> him because it wasn't good enough because Nebraska still has this, I, I don't know, um, they still think that it's 1997, Carson. I don't know. They still think that they're relevant. Older people in college football circles still think that they're relevant. Nebraska is now clearly one of the have-nots in college football, and it's not going to get turned around. It's, Nebraska's never going back to what it was. I mean, I think the, the ceiling for Nebraska moving forward is like, I, I don't know, I think their ceiling is about the kind of program that Oklahoma State is now. I think if everything goes right for Nebraska, they could hope and dream in their wildest dreams that they could become what Oklahoma State is in 2021. And the idea that we would throw current Nebraska in the same conversation as, you know, we're creating a super league for college football and we're going to throw Nebraska in there because of what they did in 1995 and 1997. That's just, it's completely blasphemous to me. Yeah, I agree. And to me, Nebraska's moved to the Big Ten. To me now, they're basically Minnesota in that they're, they're up north. They don't really have a, a great recruiting base in state. They don't really have a great recruiting base amongst their Big Ten contemporaries. Obviously, P.J. Flex turned Minnesota around. But prior to him, they're basically a three to five win team over the course of their entire history. So that's what, that's what Nebraska is now. They're basically Minnesota. And I think the dream for them was to be, was to dethrone Wisconsin in the Big Ten. They wanted to be Wisconsin, going to the Rose Bowl every year and going, you know, winning 10, 11, 12 games a, a year. Well, they're, they're so far away from that. And Wisconsin has an entrenched recruiting base up there. And they're, they're just not. They're just completely lost in the Big Ten. So I, and, and I don't understand how you can put them in because of tradition. And then he puts in Oregon. 
who has virtually no tradition past the last decade. And that has doesn't a, make any and sense. has no national championships in Oregon. Yeah, Nebraska needs to be more worried about dethroning Indiana than they do Wisconsin. Nebraska makes Oklahoma State look like Oklahoma. How, how, Oklahoma. Yeah, say, is this fair? Nebraska is as close to Oklahoma State as Oklahoma State is to like Clemson and Alabama. Yeah, I would I would That's, say that. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, just go back to the last time. When, what year was that? When when oh, Mike Gundy early in his tenure, early this was the Zach Robinson, Kendall Hunter, Dantrell Savage team, went up to Nebraska and just beat them by like forty. It wasn't even a like the, the difference in athletes even back then. This was over a decade ago. Was just night and day. I mean, it's it's crazy. So I don't know. That was a weird deal and. The, the Super League won't happen in college football, although you could also argue, Colby, it, it kind of already exists with the college football playoff. I mean, Oklahoma State has to go undefeated just to even get into the playoff, essentially. Maybe they could get in there with one loss as the Big 12 champion, but it's basically Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State, and occasionally Oklahoma and everybody else. That's basically what it is now. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's been interesting as everything's been talked about with the, the Super League and soccer there's been this conversation about the Americanizing of soccer, because that's essentially what this would be. It would turn uh, European soccer and it would turn Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Real Madrid, whoever else over there. It would turn it into basically the NBA. There'd be no relegation. Everybody makes their money. Everybody, you know, seemingly makes the playoffs. Over half the teams in the NBA make the playoffs. I'm assuming they'd have some sort of system like that in this Super League. And they'd play, obviously. It'd be entertaining. There'd be a championship given away, obviously. But the thing that makes soccer so unique, uh, and football, as they call it over in Europe, so unique is the relegation system. The fact that they have these these second leagues and the manager, the general manager of uh, Man City came out this morning and he's like, you know, it's not sport if there's no uh, punishment for losing. I mean, if you can lose and nothing happens, then it's not sport. And that is what has made soccer so unique. I hope that they don't do this. Uh, I know that I'm kind of on a different rabbit hole now talking about the Americanizing of European sports. Uh, I hope that they don't do this because the system that they have in place is good for everybody. And that's not the system that we have in college football. The system that we have in college football is good for the haves, but they're a very select group of haves and everyone else is just out of luck. The only difference from what they're proposing with the soccer league over there and what we do with college football is that in college football, we lie to about 50 fan bases a year and tell them that they have a chance when in reality, we all know they don't. I mean, college football is a super league. We just let other teams divide up the games and have their place on the schedule so that they can pull off a Cinderella upset twice a decade. It's, it's basically the same thing. Five, maybe six teams have a chance to win a national title every year, and we lie to 50 others and tell them that if things break right, it can go their way. It's, uh, now, I'm, I'm all the way down rabbit holes, Carson. I'm, I'm talking about the, the fundamental structure of college football now and how it, is the, uh, it has less parity than any other major sport in America. Yeah, I mean, college football is a very flawed sport. It's my favorite sport, so it drives me crazy. But, but yeah, until they expand the playoff to eight teams, it's going to be – basically what it's been kind of a, a somewhat super league but as far as the soccer goes the, all the teams as we're doing this podcast are pulling out the backlash was too much so it doesn't appear like that's going to happen so that that to me is a, is a great thing and I I tweeted out a clip from from Gary Neville who used to play for Manchester United which is my club 
I've supported since I was a little kid. And he, he's one of the best analysts in sport, any sport. And I tweet out a video of him just going off on it. It was fantastic if people want to, if you want their soccer fix. Uh, Colby, we taped a podcast earlier, um, was it last week, where OSU got a commitment literally like 10 minutes afterwards. So we haven't talked about Woody Newton transferring to Oklahoma State from Syracuse. And I tell you what, Colby, obviously this is, this is the day and age now of, of college basketball. You don't even really, frankly, recruit very many high school kids. You basically just recruit via the transfer portal. You recruit other schools. I pulled up some video of Woody Newton. He didn't get to play a bunch. He had COVID, only averaged like eight minutes a game. But man, this, but his per 40 minutes, he averaged 17 and a half and nine rebounds. So like when he was on the floor, he was effective. That's what the per 40 minutes uh, equates to. And when I pulled up his tape, Colby, he fits the mold of a Mike Boynton player to an absolute T. He's long, he's athletic, he's rangy. He, he fits the bill. And I think you're just going to see waves of these guys that Mike Boynton's going to bring in. That is, to me, that is a prerequisite for Mike Boynton. Long, athletic, and just can fly out of the gym. That's what this guy does. Yeah, and that's what we saw Oklahoma State do so much of this past season. Uh, and it's the reason that everybody, you know, in the tournament was talking about Liberty potentially being an upset special. And, you know, they don't turn the ball over and all this. What they do against Oklahoma State? They turned it over about three times their season average because Oklahoma State has guys whose arms stretch out to the sidelines. And that's, I mean, that's the transfer here. Woody Newton, he's six foot eight, 200 pounds, and he can shoot threes, 39% from three this mm -hmm. past season. That to me is a, a such a key statistic because he's going to be asked to do that for Oklahoma State at six foot eight. Because here, here's the thing you've now stacked up a couple of six foot eight guys, and one of those is Matthew Alexander Moncrief. Well, guess what Matthew Alexander Moncrief is not doing? He is not shooting threes. So if you're bringing in another six foot eight power forward, then that guy's going to have to be able to stretch the floor a little bit. And that's what Woody Newton does. I think he's a perfect fit. Uh, I think if you're going to just look at his points per game numbers, sure. He yeah, averaged three and a half points, 1.8 rebounds a contest. That is not indicative at all of what kind of player he is. He only played in 11 games. Like you said, he dealt with COVID. Uh, he averaged just a shade under eight minutes per game for Syracuse and averaged those numbers. So he was barely getting on the floor uh, for what was a pretty decent Syracuse team that we saw win a couple of tournament games. So, um, yeah, I think Woody Newton is the perfect fit for a Mike Boynton system. And I think he's the first in what will end up being a few dominoes to fall over the next couple of weeks. Yep, I agree with that. And three-point shooting, <laughs> it's a real need. So, like, that's what I love about him, too, the most. You mentioned his his percentage. Like, that's something they have to find next year. Farron Flavors enters the transfer portal. He was expected to be kind of their three-point specialist, didn't come to, to fruition. And I'm trying to find the field goal, the three point field goals per game on NCAA. And I'm having to click to like the third or fourth page. I think Oklahoma State's going to be near the, the 300s just because they didn't hit very many threes. And it's great to be long and athletic like a Baylor, but they sure don't shoot it like Baylor. That's how Baylor was able to win the national championship was all the three point shooting they had on the floor. That's where the game has moved. We all know this. So I, I love this. I love this guy. I, I think he's going to be really good for OSU early on. And more transfer news we ha really hadn't touched on yet. The University of Oklahoma point guard, Devion Harmon, out of the Dallas area. I thought he really made a leap this year. And just for reference here, sorry, Oklahoma State's 268 in the country in three-point field goals per game. They average about six per game. The field, goals, ma field goals made, yeah. It's amazing goals. that they were as good as they were 
shooting the three like that in modern basketball. And another thing that we have to remember, I know people don't look at Cade as some sort of three-point specialist, and he wasn't a three-point specialist, but he was one of the best three-point shooters on the team. So we still don't know what Bryce Williams' decision is going to be, and Cade Cunningham's definitely out the door headed to the NBA. You're losing a lot of shooting off of last year's team. So uh, I think assuming Woody Newton is, is healthy and picks up on everything, I think he is a, an immediate plug-and-play option that will be an impact player in the 21-22 season. Yep, I agree. I, I'm excited to see his potential. And I mentioned Devion Harmon. He he entered the NBA draft, but he can still come back to school, and he's now entered the, the NCAA transfer portal. And the, his list of schools is pretty interesting. He has some blue bloods in there, like Kentucky, like in Indiana, which we can argue about Indiana being a blue blood anymore. They're kind of like Nebraska football, frankly. But he had Oklahoma State and Texas on his list, OU's two biggest rivals. And wouldn't that be something? I don't think he's going to OSU, Colby. But the fact that the, the world we live in now, a player who played at the University of Oklahoma can now play at OSU is just a wild concept to me. Yeah, it is. And look, I, I understand that they've made this like one-time waiver for everybody, and now half the country is in the transfer portal. I, I Look, would you want this to happen every offseason? Maybe not. But I think it's incredibly exciting for one offseason with everything that happened with COVID. I do think that there should be a rule. I think anytime a coach leaves for whatever reason, fired, uh, moves to another job like Chris Beard, retires like Long Kruger, I think anytime the head coach that a kid committed to go play for, I think if that coach leaves, then the player should should be waived of any responsibility uh, to stay with that school because he went to play for that coach. If the coach can leave like Chris Beard did, I don't see why the player shouldn't be able to leave in that situation. Now, obviously, this is part of the one-time transfer rule. I don't think Davion Harmon winds up at Oklahoma State, but I've heard some rumblings that Texas is the favorite. And I'm telling you, Carson, when I say that I cannot wait to get on Twitter when it is announced that Davion Harmon is going to a rival of Oklahoma, I just... I, he has to go to Oklahoma State or Texas for me because I just need to spend like three hours on Twitter just listening and reading OU fans just complain and moan about him going to a rival. And I'm sure there will be Kevin Durant comparisons and this, that, and the other. It is going to be phenomenal offseason content uh, for everyone who's, who's in our business of covering uh, local and regional sports here in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, that would be just absolutely insane. And I, I think you're right. I think Texas is the leader because one of the articles that came out from 247 Sports was he spoke very glowingly about Chris Beard winning a national championship at Texas. So that that appears to be the, the place to beat. And so Porter Moser at OU has gotten some nice transfers. He's got the two the two Lumberjacks from Eastern Washington that, that almost beat Kansas in the NCAA tournament. But OU's going to look like a completely different team next year, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see where where Devion Harmon ends up, if not at, at Oklahoma State or Texas. So that, that was an interesting news item we had from uh, from the uh, transfer portal. Uh, what else yeah, do we about, need to get? Uh, how about Brady Manick? You talked about them having a, a totally different roster. Brady Manick's heading to North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, I think a lot of people will say, well, "Why is he going to North Carolina? He's not he's not good enough to play there." But what Brady Manick is, is he fits virtually every team in the country because he's a stretch four that can shoot threes. I think every team would like someone like that. So he, he'll probably come off the bench. And I just think it's a cool deal for a kid from Hera to get to wear the North Carolina uniform. Like that, that's pretty iconic. And I know North Carolina hasn't been as good lately, but that, that to me is something that I, I would find hard to turn down if I was him. 
Yeah, I would too. North Carolina is obviously just one of the Goliaths in college basketball uh, has been for a long time and continues to be. I hope Hubert Brown does a good job there. He, he seems to me like a really easy guy to root for. So yeah, I'm happy for Brady Manick. I remember uh, was it his junior senior year. I did play by play of the 4A state tournament out at Deer Creek High School and Harrow was playing and Brady Manick was out there. His brother Kellen Manick. They were kind of the, the two uh, two headed monster for Harris. So uh, it's cool to see him at North Carolina. Now uh, I'm not what were you want to go to next because I've got some Chris Sims audio. I yeah. want ahead of the NFL draft. You want to dive into that? Yeah, let's dive into that. The OSU spring game's coming up on Saturday, so we'll talk some football. But let's let's hear your uh, your Chris Sims. I'll answer that for Chris, as Mac Brown used to say. <laughs> let's hear from let's hear from Chris Sims. Yeah, so this is uh, talking about Tevin Jenkins. He's, you know, NFL drafts next week. Tevin Jenkins is projected first-round pick. And this is Chris Sims going into, you know, maybe some of the imperfections of Tevin Jenkins as Chris Sims sees it. But that, to me, is a little bit of what the guy is altogether. He needs work in the run game. He played in the Big 12. They ran the ball four times the whole season. You know, I mean, you know how that goes. Yeah. So there's some rawness to all of that. But I just think when you talk about the strength, the size, and the footwork being more than adequate to be able to be a pass protector as a tackle, I think he can do it, even with the shorter arms. I really do. Oh, that is brilliant. Carson, it's brilliant. Chris Sims doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't watch the games. He hasn't checked the stats. I don't know if he's even watched tape on Tevin Jenkins. He just showed up, sat down in front of a microphone, and actually had the audacity to say he plays in the Big 12. They ran the ball four times all season. Carson, Oklahoma State ran the ball more times than Alabama last year. Alabama played two more games, and Oklahoma State has more passing attempts than rushing attempts only once in the last five seasons. That year was 2017 when they had 503 passes to 495 rushes. That comes from Adam Lunt on Twitter, who does a great job uh, providing context with Oklahoma State football statistics and stuff. It's just amazing to me that Chris Sims would go on air and say what he said. It just shows such a lack of preparation uh, to go on and discuss NFL draft prospects. He's been talking out of the side of his mouth for a while now. Didn't he have some other controversial take on a, on a draft pick too, like a couple of weeks ago? I feel like he did. I don't he, understand he why like, he's on football night in America on NBC. Maybe it's because of his dad. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't really I've never understood that. So clear, clearly he doesn't, much like many analysts, we talk about this a lot in college football season. They don't watch the Big 12. So they just stick to these narratives that are from literally about 12 years ago about how it's just a pass happy, everyone's running the Texas Tech offense. In the last five, six years, it's totally flipped. I mean, you mentioned, can you read that stat for me one more time? Did you just say that Oklahoma State ran the ball more than Ala freaking Bama? Had more rushing attempts than Alabama. And Carson, Alabama played two more games. Than Oklahoma State wow. did. Oklahoma State still had more rushing attempts. And Chris, and the what bothers me about it, Carson, is it is so lazy. It is a 2017 stereotype of the Big 12 that has clearly been phased out as the conference has shifted uh, to, to more defense and, quite frankly, more rushing game than what we're seeing now in the SEC. The two have kind of flip-flopped, and yet they both still carry their reputations from half a decade ago. I just find it incredibly, incredibly lazy that someone like Chris Chris Sims would go along with that stuff. It reminds me of Jim Mora saying they don't <laughs> tackle. They don't tackle in the Big 12. It's like, well, you haven't been paying attention. Like right. the defenses have caught up to the offenses lately in the Big 12. It's just, you're right. Like it's a complete lack of, it's a complete irresponsibility to show up and not be prepared. And that's, that's all I really ask from analysts. And 
it's clear when someone's calling a game, they haven't watched the film. It's clear when analysts like him speak about a player like Tevin Jenkins and say they ran the ball four times in the Big 12. Like, it's completely irresponsible. But for me, Colby, all those numbers, in my opinion, back up what I've been trying to say for years. You know, Mike Gundy has this gunslinger spread offense reputation. He's, he's really more like Pat Jones than he is Mike Leach. I mean, he likes to run the football more than he likes to throw it. Some of that in the last four years, having inexperienced quarterbacks, we can, we can all admit that. But that's, that's who Mike is. He wants to run the football, establish the run way more than he does want to spread it out and throw it all over the yard. Yeah, that's something that Oklahoma State fans have even gotten frustrated with over the years is the fact that it seems like Oklahoma State very often, how often do we say, Carson, run, run, pass, punt, run, run, pass, punt. I mean, that's become kind of a little slogan with Oklahoma State fans, run, run, pass, punt. It's like, okay, I just did the math in my head. That's two out of three. You ran it two out of three in a run, run, pass, punt situation. Um, Oklahoma State runs the ball a lot. And Oklahoma State's had good running backs come through recently. Obviously, we look at what Chuba did. Led the country in rushing, not this past season, but the season just prior. I guess that's way too far back in in the depths of college football history for Chris Sims to remember that Tevin Jenkins blocked for the nation's leading rusher 18 months ago. I, Mm -hmm. I just... It's so lazy. Tevin Jenkins is so good. And to have the knock on him, look, if you want to talk about him having short arms, if you want to call him a T-Rex, whatever, that's fine. That's measurables combine crap that I don't care about. Turn on the tape and watch Tevin Jenkins run block. There's plenty of it. There's about 500 snaps this past year of Tevin Jenkins run blocking. You don't have to search that hard. Well, and you think if he can't run block, he's going in the top 20 picks of the NFL draft. Like, think of how good of a football player you have to be, Colby, to be taken in the top 20, let alone as an offensive lineman. Like, that that's the elite of the absolute elite. So if you're talking about his arm length, you're just not paying attention because he's clearly going to go in the top 20 to 22. So, no, I'm, I'm with you. That's, that's frustrating. And, and you mentioned Chuba. I'm seeing he's going in like the fourth or the fifth round, which you mentioned it. He led the nation in rushing. He should have won the Doak Walker award, but man, it, I don't know how high he would have gone after last year or the, the year prior, but you got to think he would have gone higher than like the fifth round, which is where he's being projected now. Yeah. I mean, I said last year, whenever he announced that he was coming back, I'm like, look, I don't make decisions for people make whatever decision you think is best for you. But I said at the time, There's no way Chuba's stock can be higher than it was after he led the country in rushing. There's no way his stock could possibly be higher by coming back and taking 300 more hits. And his stock's not as high, Carson. He's just, he's not as sought after of a prospect. There are better running backs in this class that are coming out. And he didn't have a great year. We got to call a spade a spade. Uh, Looking at what Chuba Hubbard's season was, it was, there were good moments sprinkled throughout, but I think we kept expecting him to be the same back that he was in 2019. And he just looked a step slower. It was, you know, he dealt with nagging injuries throughout the season, which that stuff, uh, and there's so much of that stuff that we don't even know about that guys play through and, and we criticize them based on their performance, not knowing what they're going through physically. But, you know, you just look at the, the body of work 
and had Chuba come out last year, all, all projections indicated he would have been off the board at least by the end of Friday, which is the third round. But projections last year would have had him, uh, you know, in a second rounder, if I'm remembering right. And now he's probably going to be a third-day guy. That doesn't mean Chuba Hubbard can't have success in the NFL. What you don't want is to get to the third day and you get taken in the fourth or fifth round, and then you go to a situation like Justice Hill went to where you just get totally buried on the depth chart. Uh, you want to – if you're waiting around that long, well, I mean, hell, you already waited three days to get drafted. You might as well go to an organization that needs you. And, and I've got one. Carson, you ready for this? Sure. You, you ready for where Chuba Hubbard can go and fill in as a rookie and serve a need? Send them to Seattle to be a Seahawk and have Chris Carson and Chuba Hubbard be a one-two punch. That is a pond that Pete Carroll and Seattle have fished in before with Chris Carson late in the draft. That was a major success. And Chris Carson and Chuba Hubbard do different things. Chris Carson is going to run you over. Chuba Hubbard is going to run around you. I think it would be a great one-two punch. Especially if Russell Wilson gets his wish and he gets to cook. I mean, yes. they, they run just power eye football with Chris Carson a lot, which it's successful, but a nice change of pace with Chuba Hubbard and a more of a spread look formation would be outstanding. I think that'd be a great spot for him. And, and, and that's the type of organization I want to see the guys go to winning organizations. Say what you want about Seattle's, you know, pedestrian style of offense. They're, they're clearly a, a franchise in front office that knows what they're doing. They know how to draft. They've drafted really well over the years, and they're just they're consistently winning. So that's, that's, that'd be a great spot for him. I have five spots that Tylen Wallace could end up at. Uh, Tylen Wallace, I think, still is vastly underrated. They're, they're saying this might be the most receivers drafted in NFL history. So he, the timing wasn't great yeah. for Tylen coming into the draft this year. But uh, Pope's post from Fansided uh, put together top five teams that could use Tylen. Number five is a team I absolutely don't want him to go to at all. <laughs> the Chicago Bears, who had Mitchell Trubisky for years. He's moved on. Now they have Andy Dalton. Uh, no thanks on Chicago. So I don't, I don't want him seeing going there. But number four is interesting. Minnesota. Uh, they still have Kirk Cousins. Obviously, Justin Jefferson was a breakout player for them at receiver. Minnesota's number four. Uh, Cleveland Browns, number three. I think they definitely need a receiver. How, how weird would that be, Colby, seeing Baker Mayfield throw to Tylen Wallace? Uh, I would hate it. I would hate every second. I would hate watch it, though. I, w- I would love to see Tyler Wallace catching touchdowns, but I would hate to see him coming out of Baker Mayfield's hands. Uh, yeah, that but Browns are going to be good again this year. That's a good spot for him, I think. It's annoying. It's number, annoying. number two for me, I think Tylen Wallace would be an all-pro within two or three years if he goes to number two. That is the Green Bay Packers. Oh. Obviously, we know who plays quarterback for Green Bay. Devontae Adams eats up a ton of targets. But past Devontae Adams, they have they have very little at receiver. Alan Lazard has played well for them, an undrafted guy out of Iowa State who we watched here in the Big 12 play. But that's a place you're kind of talking about, Colby, where they're not just loaded at the position. And Tyler, I think, would step in right away and be the number two option there. Yeah, behind Devontae Adams, Green Bay at receiver, it's really like showing up to potluck on church on a Sunday afternoon. You never know who's going to bring what. You just don't. You show up, and whatever's there, that's what you get. That's what Aaron Rodgers deals with past Devontae Adams. Alan Lazard, at times, is really good. At times, he disappears. Same with Equinemius St. Brown. Same with uh, Marquez Valdez-Scantling running down the middle. I mean, those guys have had moments as Green Bay Packers, but you can't rely on them Sunday in and Sunday out. And I think Tylen would be a guy 
that you could. So I like that. G- give me the last one, and then I'm just going to really quickly rapid fire and rank the five that you gave me one to five. Yeah, real quick on Green Bay. Like, Green Bay has been so poor at drafting. I mentioned how great Seattle was. Like, I've, I've hammered yeah. this, them on this for years about not drafting any talent around Aaron Rodgers on the offensive side of the football. You know, Devontae Adams was a second-round pick. They've never invested in a first-round pick receiver. And the one time they dipped into the second round, they got an all pro. So if they were able to get Tywin in the second, maybe even third, I think that'd be, that'd be huge. And this number one team is the Baltimore Ravens. Hollywood Brown, obviously is kind of their, their go-to guy, but he's not really a, a go-to type of receiver. He's the home run threat. Mark Andrews has really been their, their go-to receiver at tight end. They, they really need another receiver alongside Hollywood. I think this would be an outstanding place. Obviously the Ravens, one of the best teams in the NFL. Yeah, so if I were going to rank those five, one through five, uh, that'd be tough. I'd obviously go Packers number one. That's that's easy. I think that that's a perfect fit for Tyler Wallace, and he would just thrive in Green Bay. It might be the best pick, uh, a place of all 32 teams if he were to go to the Packers. After that, I think the, the waters get really muddy. Uh, so, so Packers at one, I think, is clear. Bears at five, I think, is clear. We agree on both of those. I think Ravens. Uh, Browns and Vikings. I'm going to put Vikings at four because they've already got Jefferson. They've already got this stuff. Thielen. Yeah. Thielen's still in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think Kirk cousins is great. So I'll put them at four at two and three. I could really put Cleveland and Baltimore in either order. Um, gosh, I'd love to know what the rest of those rosters are going to look like come September 1st uh, with Odell, whether they're going to move him, who else do they draft? Uh, so I think those two are interchangeable. What do you think Baltimore or Cleveland, which of those two is a better spot? I think Baltimore, um, just because there's just no depth at all there. Um, yeah, I think I'd be inclined to they're agree. Just a better, they're just a better team. I think they're better than Cleveland, so I'd probably go with them. Although, you know, playing with Baker wouldn't be too bad in Cleveland as well, and Tyler could still get to wear an orange helmet. That'd be pretty cool. You know the, team what I that, the team that I didn't have on the list that I think he should go to, I've been saying this on the podcast for, for months, is, is Kansas City. Besides Tyreek Hill – uh, Sammy Watkins has finally moved on. Uh, I think he could step right in a lot like Green Bay where they have Devontae Adams. I think he could step in. He's more of a possession chain mover receiver than a, than a Tyreek Hill is. So I think he could, he could really thrive in Kansas City. Yeah, they, they do have kind of their possession receiver in Travis Kelsey, uh, but they don't have it actually at an outside receiver position. Sammy Watkins was that guy, uh, their Super Bowl winning season two years ago. And then this past year, he just dealt with injuries all year and it never really worked. They've got Miko Hardman, but he's more of a boomer bust option. Whereas I think Tylen Wallace could be a lot more consistent. Uh, so yeah, I, I probably like that fit, but Green Bay to me, probably the best spot uh, anywhere. Also, everywhere we're sending Tylen is cold. So I hope he can catch in the cold because on the list, <laughs> we've got Green Bay, Wisconsin, Baltimore, Maryland, Cleveland, Ohio, Minnesota, uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Chicago. That's We're not sending him anywhere warm. We're doing him no favors with the weather. No. That's oof, I would not want to play in Green Bay very often, <laughs> even if even Aaron Rodgers. The hot uh, take, maybe that's why guys drop passes in Green Bay because it's seven degrees outside. Maybe so. And two two teams I think you should watch out for too in draft night is they have connections. Is the Dallas Cowboys? I know they're not in the market for a receiver necessarily, but Jerry just can't avoid taking guys from Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. He just Please can't. Don't put that on me. Please don't put that on me, Carson, for my Cowboys to draft another receiver. What about the Cardinals? Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury knows all about Tylen Wallace. I think uh, Kyler might might vouch for him as well. They, they did they do have Hopkins, and didn't they sign someone? 
Well, they've got Christian Kirk. Um, they did sign somebody. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't a mega name. It was a smaller name. Um, I, I think that Thailand would do well in Arizona, but I don't think that they'll go after Thailand because they just have so many other needs defensively and especially on the offensive line. I mean, Kyler Murray's fast, but you can only run for your life so long before your legs get tired. So I, I think that they'll go O-line and defense. By, by the time they would be ready to draft Thailand, he'll already be off the board because they would have had to draft other positions first. That's true. But it is Cliff Kingsbury. He might not be able yeah. to help himself, kind of like You're Jerry right. Jones. You're right. Uh, the Cardinals signed A.J. Green's corpse to a one-year deal. That's that's who they signed. That's what it was, yeah. So, And, and I'm assuming Larry Fitzgerald didn't retire, did he? So they're going to have Larry Fitzgerald and A.J. Green now? Yeah. It's a great team in 2008. Oh, my gosh. Even, like, 2012, they'd be loaded. Unreal. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd draft all of them to my fantasy team. Spring game on Saturday, Colby. Uh, before we get out of here, just give me one thing you're looking at, spring game. One thing I'm looking at, we talked last week about Spencer Sanders, uh, so I'll go elsewhere this week. I don't know exactly how much, I would assume, not much physicality whenever it comes to the quarterbacks. That's going to be a no-hit situation. But I think if you really watch the offensive line, like take a possession early in the game, whenever the starters are in there, and really watch, don't ball watch. Don't, don't watch the running back. Don't watch the receivers. Watch the offensive line for one possession and just see, are they winning? Or are they getting beat? Because I think Oklahoma State uh, defense is going to be pretty pretty darn good. Again, I think they're going to be good up front defensively. And I want to know, can Oklahoma State win man-on-man on the offensive line? Because you lose Tevin Jenkins, one of the best offensive linemen in the country, off of a line that struggled anyway. And I just don't know what that looks like for the future of this line. You would hope that some of those younger guys from a year ago to continue to progress. But some guys just are who they are. So uh, I would say aside from watching Spencer Sanders and his decision-making, I'll spend probably a couple possessions where I just really watch those guys on the offensive line and see who's winning. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a huge key to this season. We know they struggled last year. So I mentioned to see who they're going up against on the defensive line. I want to see what that unit looks like. Uh, obviously, we don't know how physical it's going to be. It's going to be about a half of football. But I, I'm just glad, Colby, we actually get to see a game. For the last four or five years, it's been a glorified practice. So at least at least for a half, we'll get to see some live action football at, at Boone Pickens Stadium. So that's going to be a lot of fun on saturday we do have some golf news too before we get out of here colby you mentioned the uh, osu went before we started recording the osu women are, are lighting it up at the big 12 championship is that right yeah the big 12 championships are down in the woodlands just outside houston this week and oklahoma state is not only leading they are smashing records oklahoma state in round two carded an 18 under 270 which topped the previous big 12 championship record of 278 set by OU in 2014. They bested it by eight strokes. Oklahoma State set the 18-hole scoring record at the Big 12 Women's Championship and the 36-hole scoring record. Went into today with a big lead. I believe they were up by 16 coming into the day. I just refreshed the live leaderboard. Oklahoma State still maintains a 14-shot lead with just about six holes left for the last players on the course. It was actually Isabella Fierro who was tied for the lead coming into the final day, but she's one over through 12. Maya Stark, who played in the Augusta the national women's amateur a couple of weeks ago and finished in the top 10 she's actually having a great final round she's five under through 14 and has moved herself all the way up into solo second and she's only two shots out of first with four holes to play so maya stark trying to backdoor a win at the big 12 women's championship but the, the team for oklahoma state has it absolutely locked up so huge congratulations to oklahoma state women's golf it's not just the men's side that does it on the golf course oklahoma state uh, women's golf has been really good for a long time too and, and they're 
they're looking pretty elite this year. So Big 12 champion Oklahoma State women's golf. That's big time. That's big time, big time, big time by the OSU women's golf team. OSU softball as well, Colby. They have three straight sweeps of series in the Big 12. They swept Baylor over the weekend. They're ranked 11th in the country. Oklahoma's number one. So we could have some, some bedlam for a, for a national championship once the Women's College World Series uh, gets underway in Oklahoma City. So I wanted to shout out them. They're playing really well. And on the PGA Tour, we got Swing and Pete reunited. We have Victor Hovland and Christopher Ventura playing together. It's a, it's a team format this weekend at the Zurich Classic down in New Orleans. And it's going to be really cool, Colby, to see, you know, two Norwegians, Victor and, and Christopher, reuniting. Obviously, they played together at Oklahoma State. And I kind of like their chances in this format because, you know, the first day it's it's best ball, but then day two and then the final round is, is alternate shot. And these two guys have probably played more alternate shot together than any other teams in the field. Yeah, you're probably right. And you, like you said, rounds one and three are best ball. So both players play their own ball and you take the best score of the two. So you got to make a lot of birdies in that format. And then Friday and Sunday will be alternate shot. So one guy hits the tee shot, next guy hits the second shot, and third, so on, so on, until the ball is hold. So you have to have consistency in the alternate shot. It's why it's a fun format. You've got to be able to make a bunch of birdies on the first and third rounds. You've got to be able to avoid bogeys in the, in the second and fourth rounds. It, it's a really fun format, uh, and there's a really fun picture going around. So, you know, Victor Hovland and, uh, and Christopher Ventura, both from Norway, both went to Oklahoma State. And there's a picture of these two guys from junior golf, I'm assuming, in Norway when they can't be more than, I don't know, 16 or 17 years old. And Victor Hovland is just Victor Hovland has aged well. Let's put it that way. Victor Hovland uh, definitely looks like he's just have just a fun, goofy kid out playing golf whenever he was younger. So I, I just am totally in love with the picture of those two that came out from when they were juniors in Norway. It's chubby Victor. He's got like his, ba his baby fat. It's chubby Victor. He definitely still has the baby fat whenever he was in high school, uh, and he's grown out of that. He's he's in phenomenal shape now and hits the ball a mile. But uh, it was it was cool seeing that picture. Yeah, I retweeted that as well. So go check that out. And I'm taking like in my one and done pool, you only get you only have to take one guy and you get the team results. I'm taking Christopher Ventura because I'm not going to pick him in any other tournament. And he's his form is struggling. He. He's missed a lot of cuts. He finished sixth at Sanderson way back in October. He's not coming in with a lot of form, but I think him and Victor together are going to be, be outstanding. So I'm going to kind of manipulate the system there and take Ventura in my one and done. I'm doing the same thing. I've already used Tony Finau. Uh, and Tony Finau is playing with Cameron Champ, who is right alongside Bryson DeChambeau as the, the longest hitters on tour, probably just a couple yards behind Bryson. Um, so I'm just going to load up on Finau and Champ by taking Cameron Champ and hope that they can just hit bombs on their way to victory. Who knows how it plays out? You, you know this. I know this. We've played in a bunch of team formats on the golf course. It's just there's a term in, in team golf uh, that, that golf people won't know. It's called ham and egg. Carson, you're familiar with the ham and egg. Mm -hmm. That means whenever you're playing a best ball, you know, I'm, I might hook it out of bounds and make a triple on one hole, but if you birdie the same hole and you're my partner, we're ham and egging it. And then on the next hole, you might make double and I might make par to bail you out. That's ham and egging it. Whoever ham and eggs is going to win. It, it's what's fun about team golf. Uh, it's what's infuriating about team golf, but it's fun for them to do once a year down in New Orleans. Yeah, I like it. I like to, to mix things up because we get enough 72 hole stroke play events. I like to change it up for at least a weekend. So uh, one last note, uh, Braylon Presley announcing his commitment tomorrow. So hopefully that's good news for Oklahoma State. Hopefully he'll go play with his brother up in Stillwater. I haven't really heard where he's leaning. I would think OSU would be 
probably the leader, but we'll have to wait and see where he commits to. Yeah, if if they get both those guys on campus, then I will just be so immensely, immensely disappointed in the coaching staff if at some point they don't run a trick play wide receiver pass from Presley to Presley. That has to happen at some point (laughs) if he winds up in Stillwater. So fingers crossed that uh, he puts on an orange hat tomorrow or, you know, he'll probably release some Twitter video. Uh, Hopefully it winds up Oklahoma State at the end. He's not even committed to OSU yet, and you're already hammering the coaching staff for how he's utilized. I know. Give him the ball. Let him work. (laughs) Use your talent. All right, Colby, that'll do it for today. We'll get back with you later this week. Yep, good stuff. Big weekend. Uh, Saturday, you all can go out to the spring game and OSU hosts Texas this weekend in a big baseball series. Oklahoma State needs to bounce back from a poor weekend at TCU. Everybody have a great weekend. Enjoy Stillwater. Go Pokes.